So it's all here. The story of our time with the bar call. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkoff. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. Jeff Schessel is a historian, former speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, and the creator of the comic strip Thatch. He is the author of three books, including Mutual Contempt, Lyndon Johnson, Robert Kennedy, and the Feud That Defined a Decade, and Supreme Power, Franklin Roosevelt versus the Supreme Court. His latest book, Mercury Rising, chronicles astronaut John Glenn and President John Kennedy during the nascent days of the U.S. space program, as NASA trailed haplessly behind the Soviet Union in space exploration, stoking fears that the Soviet Union was gaining a crucial technological upper hand in the Cold War. Here's a clip of an interview with Glenn at the LBJ Library in 2012, in which he talked about the space program as a pivotal part of U.S. Cold War strategy. I think people forget what the beginning of the space program really was, the manned program. These were the depths of the Cold War. And uh, we were under competition, and the, uh, there was writing about was communism really the wave of the future in certain parts of the world and so on. It was being taken very seriously. And the Soviets at that time were uh, claiming technical and engineering superiority and technical superiority to the United States because their spacecraft had gone up and, and flown, and too often ours were blowing up on the launch pad. So. Uh, but this was a competition with the Soviets, and that's the, the impetus for it and the, uh, the drive to get it going and, and, and get going and get caught up was something we all felt. Jeff Schessel, welcome to With the Bark Off. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations on, on Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the new battleground of the Cold War. We, we just heard... Uh, a clip from an interview I did with John Glenn at the LBJ Library back in 2012 in which he talked about that aspect of the space race. So why did space become what you call the new battleground of the Cold War? Well, that that quote from John Glenn really gets to the heart of it and really to the heart of the story that I try to tell in the book. Um, we often talk about the space race. We know that term, even if we're not quite old enough to, to remember those days. And a race, uh, a race almost sounds sort of fun. It sounds sporting. It's a competition. Um, but this was an existential struggle, and it was understood as such um, by the leaders of the United States and the Soviet Union. It was understood as such by the public around the world, whichever side they, they might have been on. Um, and it was understood that way by uh, the leaders of the space program and by the astronauts themselves. This was a Cold War struggle because it really was a question of which system, not just which space program, but which system was going to prove itself able to leap these huge technological and scientific hurdles and do what only a generation earlier, even a few years earlier, had been thought to be absolutely impossible, which was to send human beings into space, to send human beings to the moon. So, so you begin your book with the introduction of the Mercury 7 astronauts on the American scene. And this is the spring 
1959. And as you just pointed out, the stakes are pretty darn high when these guys are introduced to the American public. These are the first American astronauts, including John Glenn, the subject of your book. Who were these seven men and why were they chosen to usher in the U.S. space program? These seven men, the Mercury Seven, were all incredibly skilled, incredibly accomplished military test pilots. Some of them were also combat veterans. Not every single one of them had flown in combat, um, but, but a number of them had. And of these seven, John Glenn was the most decorated combat veteran of them all. He was a little older than the rest. Uh, he was born in 1921, so he was uh, 37 years old, 38 years old at the time of introduction. And uh, he had won more uh, decorations in both World War II and in Korea um, than, than any of the rest of them. And he also was a celebrity, which none of the rest of them could yet claim to be. John Glenn in 1957, by that point, he was a test pilot as well. And he set a, a speed record flying a Crusader jet from Los Angeles to New York in a little over three hours, three hours and 23 minutes to be exact. And he wound up on the front page of, of every newspaper in the United States and with his sunny, smiling, all-American face with his all-American family uh, from, from a little town in, in Ohio, New Concord, where he had come from. And he captivated the public and captivated the press immediately he wound up being invited to to go on a popular cbs program called name that tune and he was a contestant on that program dressed in his marine uniform uh, with his partner a, a little eight-year-old boy named eddie hodges and the two of them dominated this this competition for the next few weeks and, and won all kinds of money and uh so by the time the astronauts were introduced in 1959 john glenn was well known to the public and none of the rest of them were yet who were the who were the rest of them, Jeff? Who were the other six that round out the Mercury Seven? You had uh, so of the seven, John Glenn was, as he put it, the the uh, lone Marine in this outfit. He was the the lonesome Marine. He was a Marine pilot. There were three from the Navy, and there were three from the Air Force, and they were all absolutely the top of their game. Um, but. NASA was incredibly careful in its selection. It put them through, if any of you have seen, if, I, I know you have marked the, the, the movie The Right Stuff or read the book, um, to understand just what sort of inhuman experiences these candidates were put through uh, in a couple of rounds of testing to see essentially just whether they could take it. Psychological testing, stress testing, put in isolation chambers. Uh, it, it was really quite incredible and, and maybe a little sadistic. And they emerged um, not only as the best pilots in the group, but the most stable. Uh, they were all in their 30s. They didn't pick young guys who might be sort of reckless. It was thought that they had kind of worked the recklessness out of their system. And they were mature, they were serious, and they were really, really good. And um, so very few, if anyone, other than maybe some who didn't make the cut, doubted that these were the best pilots that America had to offer. How do you work the recklessness out of out of test pilots? These guys are are you know they they've got a whole lot going on, <laughs> right? As we know, uh, so how do you get that out of those guys? Well, I, I think um, as they found, you don't get it out of those guys. Um, they uh, it's bred in the bone. This is why they seek to become test pilots. Um, 
being a combat pilot is a whole set of tests, obviously. Being a test pilot, there's some overlap there, but it's a whole different set of tests. The idea is that you are being put in an experimental aircraft. No one really knows what this high-performance aircraft is going to do when you get it all the way up there at that altitude, at that speed, making those maneuvers. And something is going to go wrong, and your job as the test pilot is to push that thing until it goes wrong and then analyze it so you can come back and they can continue to work on the machinery. That is the whole point. That is what that cliche pushing the envelope was was understood Mm -hmm. to mean. And in a way, when they became astronauts, they were not only testing this new equipment, which was the spacecraft, but, but in a way they were part of what was being tested. What would humans be able to do in space? Could they take it? Would they be disoriented? Would they go crazy? Would they panic? Uh, would all sorts of horrible things happen to them in all sorts of horrible ways that were being itemized by the scientists and the, uh, mm-hmm. the psychologists at NASA? And so in a way, they were being tested just as much as the equipment. So to your question, do you get the recklessness out of these guys? Not really. And in fact, you probably need some of it in there because they've got mm-hmm. to be willing to take profound risks they're going to result very likely in, in somebody dying uh, as part of the mission. In fact, one of the most startling things that, that I learned in my research was that at, at one point in the middle of Project Mer- or early in Project Mercury, the seven astronauts got together privately and they all agreed that one of them was going to die. And it was really just a question of which one and when. It was just understood. They were test pilots. They had seen it happen to some of their closest friends and their rivals, and they expected it would happen again. And it was essentially no different than their military experience, right? You expect that in the military as well. So the space program was essentially an extension of what they had experienced in the Navy and the Marines. Yes, it was an extension of that experience. And as we were discussing a little earlier, it was also uh, another form of combat in the Cold War. They understood Mm -hmm. that even though NASA was a civilian space program, and even though The Space Act that created it in 1958 said that it was for peaceful purposes for all mankind. They understood that they were engaged, as I said before, in an existential struggle with the Soviet Union. And if we could not prove our capacity in space, then we were going to leave ourselves very vulnerable on Earth. So you've got these tested and tried test pilots who comprise the Mercury 7. But you write of John Glenn in the first chapter of the book. He was, simply put, everything America wanted to see in itself in in an age of insecurity. He was cool under pressure, yet warm and good-humored. He spoke of God and country without irony, but also without sanctimony. He brought the self-effacing values of the small town of the fiercest kinds of combat. All of the Mercury 7 astronauts were admired, but Glenn was the one America adored. So what made John Glenn different? John Glenn was was all of these things and was very clearly all of these things. Uh, The others were less comfortable in the public space. They were less comfortable in front of the cameras. They were not particularly interested and they were from a culture um, uh, the, 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 the test uh, sort of pilot school, the fighter jock world that they inhabited were, were not interested in self-disclosure. Glenn was, was perfectly happy to talk about his religious faith. He was very happy to talk about his family. He, all of these things that many Americans had come to feel were sort of old hat or were cliches, he lived them. 
And, and I think that there's, there's a reason that this mattered so much at this moment. You have to put yourself in the, the moment, in the mindset of, of the late 1950s and the sense of, of anxiety uh, that had crept into American life. It was partly living in an atomic age and uh, the sense of uh, the possibility of, of, of oblivion um, at the hands of the, the Soviet Union really at any, at any moment. That was a lot to live with. But there was also a sense in the United States in the late 1950s that the country had lost its edge that in the years since World War II, uh, we had prospered, but we'd become a little too comfortable in our prosperity. We liked our, our big cars coming out of Detroit. We liked uh, our consumer goods. We liked color television. We were experimenting with something called remote control. It was all very exciting. And the ads that we're all familiar with that ran in Life magazine, that, that we enjoyed all this a little too much. And that meanwhile, in the Soviet Union, there was a single-minded dedication to crossing this next frontier, which was exploring space, and not just exploring space, but dominating space. And the assumption was that the Soviets, with this sort of intensity that only a dictatorship could, could muster, that the Soviets would get there first and that they would not actually be looking to fulfill peaceful purposes. And so there was a, there was a sense that that the heroes of, of World War II and the heroes of Korea uh, were in the past. There was a sense that uh, there was a new conformity that had crept in. There were novels like The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit and a lot of movies that were being made to represent the, the kind of conformity that had enveloped like a, a wet blanket American life and American culture. And then here you have John Glenn. And John Glenn embodies all of these old values that people still seem to treasure, that many of our Americans did treasure but thought were being lost. But he also isn't a throwback to the 20s or, to the, or the 30s. He's a man of the future. He sped across <laughs> the United States, as I mentioned in that, in that Crusader jet, literally faster than a speeding bullet. He set a new record. And now he was in that shiny spacesuit, and he and the rest of them were going to go into space. And so he was a man of the future at the same time. And there was a sense of excitement, but also an excitement that there was a lot of press around the time that the Mercury astronauts were, were selected. And, and this wasn't just about J John Glenn, but it was mainly about John Glenn. That the amazing thing about these guys wasn't just that they were great pilots, but that they were also familiar to us. They were like the, the guy next door. They were the, the guy that you played baseball with if you were growing up in, in, in the Midwest mm -hmm. somewhere. They were, they were familiar types. They were comforting to people that they were American in the most sort of cliched sense. Uh, if you were not part of a marginalized group, this is what you thought of as, a, as an American. And, and, but they were also, uh, they were strong and they were brave and they were bold and they were taking us into a, into a new and exciting future. And Glenn was all of that, uh, really more obviously than any of them. Yeah, yeah, you don't get the the chest beating bravado with Glenn. You don't get the swagger that you do with at least some of those, most of those pilots that comprise the Mercury Seventh. But you do get the competitiveness, as John Glenn told me in in our interview in 2012. I wanted to be the first at everything. Where does that competitive uh, competitive streak come from in John Glenn? He, he grew up with it. He always had it. It was uh, really self-driven. He, he lived in that little town. Uh, I mentioned New Concord, Ohio, a population of around a thousand. 
Um, he was a star. He never really had to compete in any aggressive way, but he just was born with a drive. It was a drive at first to travel. Uh, he was obsessed with traveling just by rail and by road with, with his dad. They would drive around parts of the United States. He was then obsessed with, with getting in airplanes uh, from the age of, of eight. Uh, this seemed to offer both excitement and also the opportunity to go and see new places. And there was the drive to succeed. And he always did succeed. And he always worked hard to succeed. And I think that one of the things that is underestimated still about John Glenn is the determination, as you said, Mark, the competitiveness, the drive, the, the edginess, the restlessness. I, I think uh, he was often described as a Boy Scout, as a Sunday school teacher, because he was both of those things. But he also was a guy who, in Korea, he, he flew so dangerously low and so dangerously fast in so many cases that he got a reputation for coming back to base with, with holes in his plane. They called him Old Magnet Tail. Because it seemed like, <laughs> like he was just drawing enemy fire. In fact, he, he was drawing enemy fire. And in one case, he actually disobeyed his commanding officer and circled back to make a second attack on a target and got a hole blown in the tail of his, of his, of his jet the size of a basketball. And he actually wound up making it back to base and he posed for photographs. There's one in my book. Um, he was very proud of this. He kept it on his desk for the rest of his, rest of his years. Uh, but th this was John Glenn. So he was second mm -hmm. to none of the other astronauts and is willing to take risks uh, and, and, and to risk his life and to risk his life for a cause. And yet uh, he wore it lightly and he smiled and he was sunny. And he was, as I said, a Sunday school teacher. There was a gentleness to him. John Glenn never felt that by the way he walked or the way he talked, he needed to prove anything to anybody. He was going to prove it in the cockpit. He was going to prove it in the spacecraft. And he was convinced always that he would prove himself best. There, there seems to be something about Ohio. As you said, uh, John Glenn is very much a product of small town Ohio. But Ohio has a special connection to, to the history of aviation. The Wright brothers are from Ohio. Uh, Neil Armstrong is from, uh, the first man on the moon is from Ohio. And of course, John Glenn. Is there something about the Buckeye State as it relates to aviation that produces these pioneers of the sky. You know, I should probably say so. I was born in Columbus myself. I didn't spend a lot of years there. I didn't even spend a full year there, truth be told. Um, so I should probably argue for Ohio exceptionalism. Uh, clearly, <laughs> clearly there is such a thing. I, I can't tell you where it comes from, but I will tell you that... Um, that John Glenn was very aware of it growing up. There was a lot of local pride. I mean, the, the Wright brothers, of course, were from, from Dayton, a different town, but um, they, they, were, they, were, they were Ohio boys, and John Glenn was one as well, and there was a sense that um, he belonged and that, 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 that there was a tradition already, a, a young tradition, but that, that, he was, that he was becoming a part of. It's a very strong feeling there. The book is about two Johns. One is John Glenn, the other is John Kennedy. And I think many people would be surprised to know that John Kennedy was ambivalent about the space program. And you write of Senator John Kennedy before he became president. He shared President Eisenhower's instinct that space shots were a waste of money. Still, he was quicker than Eisenhower to understand their impact on world opinion 
and quicker than any of his Democratic rivals for the 1960 presidential nomination, any but Lyndon Johnson, to see the utility of space as a campaign issue. So how does John Kennedy use the issue of space in the 1960 presidential campaign? Well, I describe the, the national mood in the late 1950s, and it's because of that national mood and the, the ebbing sense of self-confidence, which was made so much worse by the fact that the Soviets had succeeded in getting the first satellite up into space, Sputnik, in 1957, and by a, a series of Soviet firsts and a series of Soviet challenges, uh, more consequentially, around the world, there was this, this sense of of enervation in the country. And so Kennedy comes along in 1960 running against Eisenhower's vice president, of course, Richard Nixon, and saying, as I said before, that the country's lost its, its, its energy, it's lost its sense of initiative, its vigor, and, and we need to restore that. And we need to recognize that we're about to begin a new decade, the 1960s, and, and we need to give the country a jolt. We need, as he said, to get the country moving again. And so for all of these reasons, Space was a phenomenal symbol for what he was talking about. He talked about the new frontier. That was his, his campaign platform. I mean, you could not identify a new frontier uh, more striking than, than the atmosphere, than, than, than outer space. And so Kennedy, as, as, his, uh, as his legendary speechwriter Ted Sorensen said, Kennedy understood space as a symbol. He also understood mm. that it was a symbol around the world that other nations, both allies and enemies, uh, and nations sort of in between, were all watching the United States and the Soviet Union to see which of these two systems was leading most determinedly into that, that future, that, that, that future of science and technology and greater economic opportunity. So Kennedy understood in a way that Eisenhower really was not willing to accept that the rest of the world was watching and the rest of the world cared significantly about these space achievements, whether they had any practical value or not. So that was Kennedy's understanding in 1960. He talked a lot about the dangers of being second in space, but what he didn't have in 1960 or even early in 1961 was a plan to be first. He had mm. essentially committed the United States to that without any understanding at that point of what that would require. And he entered office in January 61, and he had a lot on his plate. The number of crises were, that were roiling around the world, from Berlin to Cuba to Laos. Uh, I mean, you know the mark, of course, very well. Um, uh, demanded his immediate attention. And as far as he was concerned, space didn't, so he delayed. And then the Russians uh, forced the issue in April 1961, by sending the first human being into space, Yuri Gagarin. And does it does it catch Kennedy by surprise, Jeff? Uh, here's a guy. To, to your point, he needs to own space in order to fulfill his promise to get America moving again. And he also conveniently uses the technological superiority of the Soviet Union to stoke Cold War fears that were falling behind. But yet he he doesn't do anything immediately upon taking office. How does that happen? What what happens there? Why doesn't he see the opportunity to get moving on the space program when he becomes president? You know, what's so interesting about that moment in April 61, when Yuri Gagarin orbits the Earth, is that everyone had expected it. The CIA had been telling Kennedy it was about to happen. There were rumors in the papers. Even that week, it was understood that something was probably going to happen that week. 
And yet, when it happens, it delivers a huge shock to the nation, to the world, and to Kennedy himself. It throws the the White House into a, a sense of confusion and, and chaos when it comes to decision-making about space. And it is followed, by the way, five days later, by the failed invasion at the Bay of Pigs. And so there is a sense of crisis that is mounting. And space, and this is, the, again, the story that I'm trying to tell, there are books about the space race and there are books about the Cold War. But as far as John Kennedy was concerned, as far as the United States was concerned, these were all part of the same struggle. They were happening at the mm. same time in the same frame. And so Kennedy is dealing with Gagarin the same week that he's dealing with the Bay of Pigs. And both of these things require an American response of some kind. And so what happens in that moment is that Kennedy finally resolves that he needs to figure out what he's going to do about space. And he empowers his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, to help him figure it out. So, so uh, April is the nadir of, of Kennedy's presidency with Gagarin's flight, which comes unexpectedly and with the colossal failure that is the Bay of Pigs. And yet, John Kennedy's approval rating after those two setbacks is 83%, the highest he would see in his presidency. How do you explain that, Jeff? Well, it, we must say from our present perspective, we must start by saying it was a different era. And it is actually hard <laughs> to imagine any set of circumstances least of all a, a failure of leadership that would result in, in presidential approval ratings being anywhere near that high. But what Kennedy did immediately was to step forward and take responsibility. What he didn't say, although it would have been valid enough, is that he had inherited this half-baked plan from Eisenhower, that it had been sold to him on false intelligence by the CIA, and that he had acceded to it uh, against his own better judgment. But he did accede to it. So he stepped forward and he said, you know, I'm the responsible officer of this, this government. And the public understood that this was a president who was owning up to something that, that he had done wrong. And so there was really a rush of, of support for him. And it was early in his presidency. And there was generally a sense that Kennedy was working hard uh, to do the right thing on, on a number of fronts, that he was facing difficulties, not all of which were of his own creation. And the American public was willing on the whole, and by a huge margin, to give him some time. Well, the world wasn't necessarily willing to give him some time. Uh, more crises were, were coming around the corner, but, um, but the public sure was. By all indications, John Glenn would have been the logical astronaut to make the first manned U.S. spaceflight. And yet, Alan Shepard was chosen to be the first, and Gus Grissom was chosen to be the second. Why was John Glenn passed up for those first two flights? Everybody expected it to be John Glenn, maybe outside of some of the other astronauts, and even some of the other astronauts expected it to be John Glenn. The public thought it would be Glenn. They wanted it to be John Glenn by an overwhelming margin. The press was very much in John Glenn's corner and unembarrassed about reporting that. Uh, it was clear that the nation's uh, reporters were a cheering section for John Glenn, which created no end of resentment among the other astronauts. And within the program itself, and I talked to, to some of the, the men who were part of these decisions at the time, it was understood that Glenn and Shepard were the leaders among the group of seven, that they were the strongest personality and they were the most capable pilots, and that it would almost certainly be one of the two of them. And there were camps of supporters within the NASA hierarchy 
for the two of them. But the truth was that the Shepherd's camp in the end was larger than Glenn's. There was a lot of resentment of Glenn, as I said, and it wasn't just limited to other astronauts who were unhappy about his celebrity. It also included some of his so-called superiors at NASA, some of the senior NASA officials who didn't really like the fact that Glenn had this national cheering section. It it confined their choices, they thought, that anytime they, they uh, thought about making a different decision, they would read another article saying that everybody wants John Glenn to, to go first. And so there was, uh, in, in a way, a, a, a bit of a, a, a grudge developing against John Glenn very early uh, and a feeling that, that Glenn was, was seeking the spotlight. In fact, mm. he really wasn't seeking the spotlight. The spotlight was seeking him, and Glenn was doing his best to share it with the others. Um, I'll give you one example. Um, I found a, a letter um, uh, that... Uh, was written to, to Glenn within a, a couple weeks of the astronauts being introduced in that spring of 1959. It was a letter to Glenn from a guy named Lawrence Spivak, who, as you may know, started Meet the Press. He was the first producer and the first host to Meet the Press. And so there's seven astronauts. They were all presented on equal footing. But Spivak writes Glenn, and he says, how'd you like to come on the program? We'd really like to talk to you. And I found a letter from Glenn back to Spivak saying... Uh, wow, gosh, that's, you know, uh, that's very generous of you to invite me on the program, but could you actually um, have all seven of us on the program? Uh, we're working very closely together, Mr. Spivak, and as I'm sure you can understand, we don't want any divisions uh, to develop among us, and we really are trying to operate as a unit. Would you have all seven? And uh, I never found a, a reply. The answer, I guess, was it didn't work out, either for reasons of scheduling or some other. They did not have all seven of them on. But the others... And this was true of both the astronauts and it was true of the senior officials at NASA. They never believed this about John Glenn. They thought that he was a glory hound and, mm. and they wanted to put him in his place. And in fact, mm. this was the first opportunity genuinely to do that. And so Shepard was picked and Shepard was a phenomenal pilot. There's nothing you should take nothing away from, from Alan Shepard. He was absolutely as capable as Glenn of flying that, that, that first flight or any flight. But Shepard uh, kind of kept his head down. He worked very hard, and he was not seeking attention in, in the way that Glenn was see, seen to be seeking attention. And so he was rewarded by a culture within NASA that appreciated that. And Grissom uh, uh, also benefited from a, a more kind of quiet and focused approach. And in the crowning indignity for, for John Glenn, not only did he not get the first slot or the second slot, but he was named the backup to both, which in a way just made the whole thing worse. And at the same time, there's this resentment around John Glenn. You also need him. We are pouring millions and millions of dollars into the U.S. space program at that time with very few results. And you have this supreme salesman in John Glenn, better than any of the, the other Mercury 7 at selling the virtues of the U.S. space program. You would think, Jeff, that the administrators at NASA would understand his PR value. And they did understand his PR value. And that was actually an irony and, and a painful one for Glenn is... In January 1961, NASA made the decision that, that you just described, where it picked Shepard and, Gr and Grissom and, and Glenn was made the backup to both. They did not figure out yet who was going to fly the third flight. But it, 
NASA decided not to tell the public because they thought the, the focus on Shepard would become so intense that it would interfere with his training and it might throw him off. So they decided to, to uh, do a little bit of a head fake and they said, these are the three finalists. They needed to say that because those three needed to separate from the rest of the group to engage in a different kind of, of training. And so these were the three finalists and the press continued to say, well, of course, Glenn will emerge on top. But they all knew, Glenn knew, and the others in the program knew that Glenn had already lost that competition. But NASA continued to put Glenn forward in front of the microphones to speak for the program. And when the press came down and when members of the Kennedy White House came down to Cape Canaveral to tour the facility, to understand the training, a big White House delegation came down for a number of days. It was Glenn who led them through it. It was Glenn who was suited up and you know, showed them how the spacesuit was going to work. It was Glenn who showed them how the capsule was going to work. And so here was Glenn. He didn't get to fly first. He didn't even get to fly second, but he was made to do all the PR. And so this was a very difficult time for, for John Glenn. He kept it bottled up pretty well, except uh, in his family life, um, he was pretty sullen for a period of time. And his friends knew that there was something very badly wrong and uncharacteristically wrong with Glenn during this period of time. But publicly, and again in front of the cameras, he maintained that sunny personality that everyone had gotten to know. And yet his time does come on February 20th, 1962. And the stakes simply could not have been higher. Set the stage for that day, Jeff. And what was America thinking and doing on that day? Well, just a, a, a little bit of background to give a sense of the stakes as they were developing. So Gagarin, as we've been discussing, went up in April 1961, and it was only a couple of weeks later that, that Shepard went up and then, and then Grissom uh, went up in the, in the summer of 61. But while, Gagor while Gagarin had orbited the Earth, Shepard and Grissom hadn't. They rode a Redstone rocket up into space, and it wasn't powerful enough to get a U.S. capsule into space. We weren't ready to orbit the Earth. And so they flew what were called suborbital flights. They went up, they came down. Uh, the whole thing took 15 minutes. And so while Americans cheered this, and it was better that it succeeded than that it didn't, it, it, it felt pretty second rate compared to what the Soviets had done. And so NASA decided enough of these so-called short shots, as they called them, they needed to, to step up uh, to the orbital phase of the program faster than they had been planning to do. This required a new rocket, a more dangerous rocket that had had all sorts of troubles called the Atlas rocket. This thing had been exploding, as John Glenn himself said at the beginning of the program. They were exploding on the launch pad quite a lot. And, and Glenn was going to be the first to ride this thing. And then it didn't happen. And months and months went by. And NASA kept saying, by the end of the year, by the end of the year, and then the end of the year came, and there had been no orbital flight. And then January came and went, and John Glenn suited up and was sent up into the capsule and sat there atop that rocket for five hours, and then they called it off because of weather, and he was brought down. Ten times Glenn's flight was postponed for one reason or another, weather problems, technical problems, all sorts of problems. And so it had started to feel ill-fated. It had started mm -hmm. to feel doomed. And meanwhile, the Soviets were not only continuing their program and managed to not just orbit the Earth again, but to orbit the Earth 17 times over the course of 25 hours 
in the summer of 1961, that it just seemed that not only was the United States losing, but it was losing badly, and essentially the whole space race was lost. And so with every successive delay, there was more and more anxiety about Glenn's safety, and there was more and more anxiety about the dangers of a world in which the Soviets, Soviets controlled outer space. So the stakes could not have been higher by February 20th, 1962. Uh, so why did John Glenn's space flight on that day so vividly capture the American imagination? So I think a lot of it has to do with all of these delays that we were not in any place to take for granted that these, these spacecraft were going up and coming down. There was the sense that the stakes were profound. Uh, there was a sense that the danger was profound and the wait was very long. And so when it finally happened, it seemed almost impossible that it was finally happening. And everything in the country simply stopped. Glenn orbited the Earth three times. It took about five hours for that to happen. And almost everything literally in the country simply stopped. There were trials underway that were stopped. They rolled in television sets to, to watch the coverage uh, in the courtroom. Congress adjourned because nobody was getting anything done anyway. Kennedy had a series of meetings but couldn't focus. He just stood in front of the television set. He couldn't sit down half the day. Uh, people were, if they were out running errands, they would, they would stop in, in front of a, a department store window or find their way to a hotel lobby where there was a television set and just stand there for hours. The entire concourse at Grand Central Terminal was filled all day with thousands, up to 10,000 commuters who weren't commuting. They weren't going anywhere. They just stood there and looked up at a huge screen that CBS had mounted at Grand Central so everyone could watch this. People were paralyzed by this, and, uh, and they were oddly quiet because, as I said, there was really the sense that he might not come back alive. And so nobody was ready to celebrate until they saw him actually get out of that capsule on the, on the deck of, of the recovery ship. What did John Kennedy make of John Glenn's flight? Kennedy felt the stakes as profoundly as anybody outside of Glenn or, or Glenn's own family. He knew what was riding on this. And he understood that, that one of the advantages of, of, the, uh, of, of a democratic uh, system um, is also one of its disadvantages, which is that all of this was going to happen in the plain sight of the world. The Soviet space program was shrouded in secrecy. They didn't announce that the Gagarin was was uh, lifting off. They didn't tell the world. Now our intelligence picked it up, but the Soviets did not tell people that they were doing these things until they were done and until they were successful. They were giving themselves room to fail in secret. It was it, it was uh, it was a, a central feature of a totalitarian system was that there was no transparency of any kind. No one even knew where the, 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 the launch pad was. It was in Kazakhstan. That was not disclosed. There was a lot of guessing going on about where these things were, and no one got to see the spacecraft. The Soviets released a, an image of it, but no one was really sure whether this was actually the image. So that's what was happening on their side, whereas here in the United States, we announced that we're going to test a new rocket, and then the thing blows up on the launch pad in front of television cameras, not only from the three networks in the U.S., but from around the world. Uh, 
So we failed in plain sight and we failed repeatedly. So Kennedy understood that if something horrible happened to Glenn, that the whole world would literally be watching in that moment. And there was no protecting either Glenn's family or uh, U.S. prestige from, from a total disaster. So he felt it very profoundly. It was all part of American transparency, which was one of the differences that uh, we showed in ourselves in the Cold War. Right? We were transparent. We, we did not, we we're not clandestine. You saw our successes and failures both. Absolutely. And so this actually became part of the triumph of Glenn's flight. Um, as James Reston, the New York Times columnist, said at the time, he said, Glenn took took the world along with him, took, took the world along for the ride. And this was much commented on, not just in the United States, where you know maybe Americans were patting ourselves for good reason on the back, but around the world. There were a lot of editorials being written everywhere from Paris to Cairo about the contrast between the two space programs and one that happens in secret for purposes that they will never disclose and the other that happens, including its embarrassments, in front of the world. And so the success was all that much sweeter because everybody got to see it and because of what that represented to the world. So six months after Glenn's triumph, JFK makes his iconic speech at Rice University in Houston, in which he proclaims, we choose to go to the moon, and sets a nearly impossible goal of putting astronauts on the moon by 1970. This is a change in John Kennedy. Why does he become so bullish and bold on space exploration in the fall of that year? To get to that fall, you have to go back again to the to the days and weeks after the Gagarin flight in April of 61, when Kennedy was casting about for what to do. The fact was that we were not going to catch up with the Soviets very quickly because their booster rockets were much more powerful than anything we had yet developed. There were other larger rockets being developed. The Saturn rocket, for example, were under development, but they weren't anywhere near ready yet. So it was going to be a while, and the Soviets were going to continue to beat us to, to other milestones. And so Kennedy, with Johnson's help, was looking to identify a point much farther uh, in, in, the, in the future, in the distance, uh, where we might just have a chance because of the time involved, because of the investment involved, because of the new technology that hadn't been developed yet, uh, that wouldn't rest on the size of Soviet boosters. Because of all of that, we might have a chance if we set this goal by the end of the decade, which at that point was nine years away when he set that goal in May of 1961, that maybe we would leapfrog them by the time we got there. He couldn't be sure of it, but it was possible. Mm. And so that was one of the principal reasons. That was really the principal reason that, that Kennedy set the goal of going to the moon and announced it right after Shepard's success in, in, in May 1961. But one of the interesting things, and this goes, uh, this leads directly to that Rice speech that you mentioned, is that the public wasn't convinced. public wasn't convinced we were going to get there, and the public wasn't convinced that it was worth it that it was worth the money, mm. that it was worth the effort. And when the public wasn't mm. convinced, the Congress wasn't convinced. And they were willing at first because it, it was a national security crisis, as it was understood. They were willing to give Kennedy the money that, that he was asking for early on. But they were, they were never sure they wanted to keep giving him the money to do it. And one of the reasons that, mm. that Kennedy went to Rice and gave that speech was because there was a, a slackening of interest, both in the country and in the Congress, 
in the space program and in the lunar program particularly. And Kennedy went to, to Houston, went to what became the, the Johnson Space Center and, and went and gave that, that incredible speech at Rice because he was trying to give the space program a shot in the arm. It was a continuing struggle for him really to the end of his presidency, to the end of his life, to try to keep America on that path to the moon uh, because not everyone was convinced that we belonged on it. So Kennedy gets due credit for boosting American space efforts, but how does his vice president, you've mentioned several times, Lyndon Johnson, factor into all this? Lyndon Johnson is really the the unsung hero of the space program. And yes, there is, as I just said, there's, there's a space center named after him um, in Houston. Uh, and yet, I don't think most Americans really understood then and, or understood now just what a central role he played uh, in the space program, going back to the creation of NASA. As soon as the Soviets sent Sputnik uh, into space in, in October 1957, Johnson immediately jumped into, into the fray. Um, one of his advisors wrote him a memo uh, and said, you, you should plunge heavily into this one. Uh, they saw political opportunity in it, and, and they also saw a national security interest in it. And so Johnson did exactly that. He plunged into it, and he launched a, a series of hearings beginning in the fall of 1957 and, and running for, for two, three months uh, in what he called, and he did his best to, to make it so, he called an atmosphere of another Pearl Harbor. And he brought in <laughs> scientists. He brought in you know, veteran scientists from the Manhattan Project um, who had helped create the atomic bomb. They, he brought in generals and admirals and all to talk about the national security danger of falling behind the Soviet Union. And so Johnson in this way helped to generate momentum that by the middle of, of 1958 essentially forced Eisenhower politically to create NASA. Mm and to empower it with the human spaceflight effort, which is not something that Eisenhower was at all excited about doing. He sort of mocked it as a, as he told his aides, as a great department of space, that it was gonna suck up a lot of money for silly science projects. But the political atmosphere was such, and Johnson's efforts were such, that, that Eisenhower went ahead and, and, and did create NASA in that moment. And Johnson stayed engaged on the issue. And so when John Kennedy selected him as his vice president and when they were elected in the fall of 1960, it seemed natural that, that Johnson would lead the space effort in the White House. And indeed, he did exactly that. And so, as I mentioned before, after Gagarin went up, it was Johnson to whom Kennedy turned and said, you figure this out. Tell me how we're going to beat the Soviets. Anything, Kennedy said, any way find me some goal that we can set that will that will allow us to beat the Soviets. And Johnson drove very hard and very quickly toward the moon. I want to play another clip from our interview with John Glenn in 2012, which uh, captures the spirit of the man. I received a letter from a boy in Illinois. This is an actual letter. I'm not making it up. It's true. And uh, here's what he, he told me. And he writes this and he says, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm nine years old. I'm in the third grade in such and such a school. I wish you could come just recently. I had to do a biography report and I picked you because I wanted to learn more about the first American to orbit Earth. I loved reading about your life. When I had to do my presentation, I made a poster and dressed up like an astronaut. Then he asks a couple more questions. Then he finishes with this. 
I'm glad you're still alive because a lot of my classmates' biography choices are already dead. I, I hope you write back. <laughs> that kid got the fastest answer back you ever got. <laughs> so many people, including me, worship John Glenn as an American hero, but he's clearly different than John Glenn, the man. So uh, what would surprise people about the real John Glenn relative to the myth we've built up about John Glenn? John Glenn was a more complex, more interesting guy than I think many people realized than, than I realized when when I began this this research. His, his cheery, kind of benevolent Boy Scout personality was so powerful and so strong and, and so genuine. It is an authentic aspect of John Glenn's personality. There was no pretense at all about John Glenn. This is really who he was. It's so powerful and in a way overpowering that I think that people underrate or don't even notice the, the competitiveness that we were talking about earlier, the, the ambition, the, the determination to, to win. Uh, that, that John Glenn had, and that in fact he had to have to be a successful and surviving combat pilot, to be a not only a, an effective test pilot, but a celebrated test pilot, and ultimately to be an astronaut who was willing to put himself through that risk and actually who faced risks during a, a, a challenging flight in space. This was not all easy up there in orbit. There were some things that, that went wrong um, and that, that might have uh, gone very badly wrong if John Glenn hadn't been able to, to keep his cool. So I think that, again, Glenn wore it so lightly that it was difficult to know, difficult to see, or even impossible to see what, what was roiling underneath. But there was a lot there. And this was one of the most exciting things for me um, uh, in the process of, of researching this book was to go through the Glenn archives at Ohio State. And um, this was a man who saved everything. And he saved everything from childhood. He didn't just start saving stuff when he became an astronaut or a senator. He saved everything. And so hmm. you really have the opportunity to, to get many windows into John Glenn's personality and, and, his, and his thinking from his diaries in World War II to his letters home in Korea to notes that he would scratch in the margins of flight plans uh, during Project Mercury filled with the complaints he was going to raise with his managers at NASA who were doing, as in his view, dangerous things that were wrong-minded and were going to put the, the astronauts in jeopardy. Uh, I found a number of note cards where he was preparing for what were going to be some very heated, very difficult meetings that had to do with the degree of control that the astronauts were going to be allowed to have over their own capsule. As mm -hmm. far as the flight directors uh, went, they, they wanted the astronauts simply to fly on autopilot. They would have been happy if mm -hmm. they didn't push a single button or flip a single switch. That was what the capsule was designed to do, was to fly automatically. These were test pilots. They wanted to fly the thing, and they didn't trust the autopilot. They trusted themselves. So there was a lot of argument between the astronauts and uh, the managers over, over that set of questions, and Glenn really helped to lead the argument. And you find evidence of it in his notes. And you also find, most strikingly, and this is something that, that I hadn't 
certainly hadn't anticipated and had never seen before. Uh, a script for a recording that John Glenn made to his children, his teenage children, mm. on the eve mm. of his orbital flight that he wanted to have played for them in the event that he didn't come home alive. And it begins uh, on a really jarring note. He says, if you hear this, I've been killed. And he begins uh, the, the, the body of the, of the script by saying that, that he has made his peace with God and he died for, for a good cause. And he then proceeds to, to tell them how he would like them to conduct themselves during his funeral at Arlington, where he expected there would be no body. I mean, this is how frank it was. Mm. And he made this recording and he made another one for his wife, Annie, and, and he sent it to them on the eve of his flight to be put away um, and only played, obviously, if, if necessary. And thankfully, it was not necessary. But there was, a, there was a, an, an inner Glenn, a Glenn below the surface that that felt many of the anxieties and the fears and the resentments and all the things that the rest of us human beings feel. You mm-hmm. wouldn't know it from from watching him at these press conferences. But um, but it was going on in there and and thankfully the archives, as I said, give us some clues to who that John Glenn was and and that's the John Glenn that I try to bring forward in, in the book. Jeff, is there anything in American life today or in the life of the world today that could possibly capture our imagination and bring us together to the extent that the race for space did 50, 60 years ago? I would like to believe that, that there are such things. Um, and I don't want to say that there aren't, but I, I think we are in a moment right now, and unfortunately it's an extended moment, in which we have to question whether we can really be brought together at all by anything. Um, and I think that... Uh, one of the reasons that the, the country was so invested in the space program was not just in, in the 1960s, was not just because it was so exciting, and it was, it was thrilling, and not just because it was populated by genuine heroes, and John Glenn was one, but not the only one, but because it mattered. It was consequential, and the stakes seemed to be very, very high, as, I, as I've said. And so all of these things brought Americans together across all the, the lines of division. Uh, whether there's anything that can do that right now, it's hard to know what it would be. Um, I think there's a lot of excitement for a very good reason about what's going on in the current space program. Um, NASA continues mm. to push the frontiers of science. It's absolutely incredible to watch this, this helicopter flying around on Mars. And it will be incredible to see human beings uh, back on on the moon and maybe even on Mars uh, in our lifetimes. Um, there's a lot of excitement ahead, and I think it appeals to people across partisan divisions and so forth. But these are ultimately, these are political decisions. They are led by presidents as much as they are led by administrators of NASA. And there has got to be a collective willingness uh, to support uh, our presidents when they are when they are making um, decisions like this, and that you know that's something that is um, that is in short supply right now. Um, and I, and 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 you see it when it comes to COVID, and you see it when it comes to the economy. Things that have a lot more immediate impact on the lives of of Americans than whether we actually do get back to the moon or to Mars. The book, which I highly recommend, is Mercury Rising: John Glenn, John Kennedy and the new battleground in the Cold War. And our guest and the author is Jeff Schessel. 
Jeff, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. My thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and as always, to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.